All right, good morning, church. How we doing? Good, good. Why don't you meet me in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Genesis, then Exodus, the first couple books of the Bible. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here, and we get to open up God's Word together, as the kids will be doing uh, downstairs as well. A couple of disclaimers as we jump into the Lord's uh, word this morning is that we'll be speaking about sex and marriage. That means uh, perhaps for many of you, this will bring up questions, stories, past experiences, future aspirations, and therefore it's an important reminder that sermons are not meant to be preached into vacuums of people, but actually meant to be spoken within the context of community. And therefore, I would encourage you, if if things come to the surface for you today, things, desires, again, past stories, wounds, shame, and guilt, would you be sure to share that with your brothers and sisters in Christ? You're never meant to journey uh, in this alone, and we're, we're in this together in that regard. Um, and also, I would just like to say, believe it or not, I will not be able to touch on everything uh, that comes to mind today because of this text, so I'll do my very best to stick and to be as true and as faithful to the primary text that we're in this morning, but I am increasingly convicted and convinced that what we face in our particular age is a sexual sickness, a sickness which is not just merely one of the body, but also of the mind and of the heart, and I think that these texts today will really help us to understand that and by God's grace live in holiness uh, in response. And I, I could do a lot. There's a lot of different places that we could go to try to convince you or at least make you more aware of our culture's sexual sickness. A 2019 uh, report surveyed 30,000 uh, American college students, 51% of the men and 32% of the women surveyed confessed and shared that they had been exposed to pornography before the age of 12. That, that same report, which also spoke about a 2014 study, communicated that over 60% of men and over 40% of women uh, surveyed had looked at porn at work in the past three months. Now, b- before you believe that this is an issue outside of the walls of the church, it gets more convicting. In 2016, Barna Group reported that one in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors use porn on a regular basis and are currently struggling. That's more than 50,000 U.S. church leaders, and I would have been numbered among them early on in my career if the Lord had not redeemed, saved, and continues to work on me as it relates to the lust of the eyes and this sort of pattern of the flesh. It's not something, pornography is an issue out there or sexual sickness an issue out there, but an issue within the context of church community. And it's not just pornography. A 50-year research project done by U.S. Public Health reported that by the age of 20, 77% of respondents had had sex and 75% had had premarital sex. That's before the age of 20. By by age 44, 95% of respondents had had premarital sex. Again, that's a report from public health. This report actually uh, discerned and came up with the idea that ultimately, based on these numbers, it is unrealistic to the public health of the United States to consider abstinence as an option. These statistics are merely that, though, statistics. They're merely ideas that communicate not just an over-sexualization of a particular person, but ultimately of an entire culture. We haven't even spoken about media or sporting events, the entertainment industry, and a general sense of being culturally enamored by anything promiscuous. The weight of such a cultural moment has led uh, many in the church actually to go back to the scriptures, which is good, but with this sort of grit and desire to mine out a wider opportunity biblically for sexual expression. Some voices, like that of the author of Good Christian Sex, attempt to explain biblical permission for sexual intimacy, which is both mutual and beneficial outside of the boundaries of monogamous marriage. This, they believe, is a progressive viewpoint of God's word. Subsequently, many in Christian academia and in a number of different Christian denominations have decided to split ways because of their particular view of sexual ethics as relates to the Bible in believing that ultimately consenting bedrooms is an issue of a private matter, not a biblical one. 
All of this to say what we see in our culture is that the the lane is widening, if you will, not becoming more focused about what it means to be faithful, about what it means, what it means to understand sexuality. This is unsurprising, I'm sure. Here's what is surprising. What is incredibly shocking is that with all of this permission, many states within our country still have laws prohibiting adultery. Four states are currently working to legislate away those particular edicts, but they still remain in 18 states that outlaw adultery, and Illinois is one of them. Most of these crimes are seen as misdemeanors that come with uh, particular monetary fines and up to six months in jail, but in some states, adultery is looked at as a felony. Now, these laws rarely used, you can imagine, rarely upheld because many believe that a 2003 Supreme Court case upholds this view of privacy that would ultimately and legally supersede any attempt to mandate one of these, particularly adult, one of these particular adultery laws. And so the question is, why do we keep it? Why do we keep a particular law that seems to many as outdated and completely unuseful? Why keep the laws if they are no longer useful? Many perhaps ask the question of the Seventh Commandment today, not just of state legislature. It's because it says, you shall not commit adultery. Why keep the laws if they are no longer useful? Recalling the resignation of General David Petraeus in 2012 after his um, admitted adultery, a New York Times journalist uh, explained, and he's quoting law professor Melissa Murray from UC Berkeley. This is what uh, she said as he recorded it in the New York Times. Now we live in an age when sex is not limited to marriage and laws are slowly responding to that, she said. But we still love marriage. Nobody is going to say adultery is okay. So she's saying nobody really wants to get away with these or get rid of these adultery laws because that would look bad. Church, here's the complexity of our particular time. This is why this is such a difficult subject to navigate appropriately is that it's not just that with sex anything goes, but rather that anything goes, yet we still want to be perceived as good and moral people. We still love marriage, she says. We don't want to be good ultimately. We just want to look good and feel good. This is the fantasy. This is the made-up fiction in our heads, which Jesus exposes in his exposition of the seventh commandment, which is ultimately where we will arrive today after we pray and ask for the Lord's help. So let's pray. Father, there is a heaviness on my heart to be clear and responsible with your word. And also, Father, to understand how it is that this word particularly applies and is fruitful for us as a people today. And so we thank you that your enduring word is applicable, is life-giving, is nourishing to our bodies and to our minds and hearts today. What a gift it is that we are not those wandering around this cultural confusion with no way to know what truth and beauty and goodness is, but we have your word that shines brightly in the darkness. So would you open our eyes that we might see eternal and beautiful things today? Would you open up our hearts that we would not just become... uh, people who believe that we have things to work on, but God, we realize that we need you to work on us. We need you to transform our hearts, renew our minds, make us the people, the bride that you're calling us to be, we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, if you'll meet me there. We've entered into a portion of the Ten Commandments as we've explored uh, the first six, but now we're into the movement of neighborly love. You see, we can organize the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, the Decalogue, in two different sections. The first four commandments, we could view those as direct commandments about our direct relationship with God. The, The second part or the last six commandments, we can view as this neighborly love, this exposition about what it really means to love our neighbor, to love each other within covenant community rightly. So this, the second section is where we find the seventh commandment. So it's meant to lead to human flourishing. It's not meant to stifle. It's not merely meant to show God that you love him. It's meant to show our neighbors what it truly looks like to live in faithfulness and love. And those particularly our neighbors in human flourishing and human relationships here is marriage. So look at it with me. Exodus chapter 20 verse 14 to make sure that our eyes see it. You shall not commit adultery. Much like verse 13, the verse right before this, in this Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, it's just two words. 
It's short. It's simple. This true prohibition, actually, though, or prohibition, rather, reveals much more truth about marriage than it does about adultery. Now, to us, like right at first, we might have a little bit of a hesitation with this particular word, so let's, let's look at it, the word adultery. For some of us, it might feel archaic. It might feel a bit abrasive. But let's be honest, as English speakers, we're really good at coming up with soft words and gentle words to talk about very difficult things, to talk about hard things, to talk about evil and broken things and uncomfortable ideas. And so instead of saying dead, what do we say? Passed away. Instead of saying sin, we talk about struggle. We never actually say that I've sinned, we say that we are struggling. And instead of saying that the bears are terrible, we say they're rebuilding, right? That's a sports reference, you're welcome. Uh, Likewise, instead of adultery, we've come up with a much softer, what we believe to be a kinder word, affair. There's something to be said, isn't it, church, about a people who find beautiful words to speak about ugly things. Find beautiful words to speak about ugly things. Adultery is not an affair. An affair is an event you get dressed up for to celebrate something, and an affair seems just like the opposite. An event perhaps multiple events, with nothing truly to celebrate. In the Hebrew Bible, the word adultery is nup, and it it has perhaps an expected meaning. Uh, Having sexual intercourse with someone other than your spouse as a, a married person or a betrothed person. This word is prohibited all over the scriptures, so it is not merely here in Exodus, but also Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Job, Proverbs, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, just in the Old Testament. And as we've said, though, this, this edict, this idea tells us much more about marriage and sex than it does about adultery. So what is actually revealed here in this simple two-word um, prohibition in the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment, actually tells us much about marriage. So here are a few things that we learn about marriage from God's heart through God's word. First, sex is for marriage. Contrary to popular assumption, sex is not ultimately for you. This is, this, is, this is where we begin from. Sex is for marriage. Sex is not for you. It's not something we each have a right to therefore define and use and experience as we see fit. It's a gift granted solely for marriage. Professor Rebecca McLaughlin goes as far as to make the claim that all of the creation mandates God gives to humanity to rule, to relate, to create, and to demonstrate the fullness of God's image, all of those things, she says, are dependent upon the marital relationship given in sex. And therefore, sex is for three things within marriage. First, it's a signpost. Sex over and over again is communicated as a signpost. Therefore, sex is for marriage, but sex isn't about marriage. Sex is for marriage, but it isn't even about marriage. The Bible teaches us that the union of marital intimacy is meant to point to the faithfulness and oneness between God and his people. Secondly, sex is for intimacy and pleasure. Sex doesn't create intimacy. Please understand this. It cultivates and celebrates it. Therefore, if you have not promised oneness and proposed oneness through covenant, sex means something else entirely to you, entirely different than what the Bible teaches. It is a gift to encourage and to build up and to enjoy the intimacy experienced through covenant. Thirdly, under this, this heading of sex is for marriage. Thirdly, sex is for procreation. Maybe perhaps the most obvious some of you maybe even grew up and being taught that this was the only reason that sex was granted. I actually would have loved that information in fifth grade because I didn't know that. As my teacher was communicating sex ed in fifth grade, I submitted a question. Is there another way to have children other than what you are describing because that's evil? You can laugh at fifth grade me because that's all true, everything I've just shared with you. See, maybe some of us grew up with this understanding that sex was for procreation or perhaps like me, that it was just evil and dirty and wrong and there must be some other way that pigeons brought you children or storks, whatever bird that is. (laughs) The scriptures are really clear though. All you need to do is look at the Song of Solomon and see they weren't trying to make a baby. They were trying to enjoy the brilliance of the covenant that God had entrusted to them. So sex is for marriage. Secondly, what we learn from this Uh, particular edict in Exodus 20 is that marriage is for life. This commandment, like the rest, has no terminate date. It doesn't say you shall not have adultery until or as long as. It just stops right there with those two words. And also from the teachings of Jesus, we understand, though, that marriage is a temporary 
gift, a temporary signpost for this age in Matthew 19. In other words, there is no marriage and giving in marriage in the age to come. This is a permanent relationship sealed by a covenant to be celebrated and nurtured through sexual intimacy and serving one another in this age, in this life. Thirdly, not only is marriage or sex for marriage, but marriage is for life. And thirdly, what we learn is that marriage is exclusive. We rightly deduce that if adultery is prohibited, then marriage is exclusive. To be sure, we read, and I know one one of our concerns, our mind may go to all of the stories and rules about polygamy in the Old Testament, but polygamy is never instructed. It is merely described and restrained by God's will. The primary treatment of Scripture from Genesis 2 to Hosea all the way through Revelation to the communication of God's people, the church, is a oneness between two monogamous, permanent, and exclusive parties, namely a man and a woman and God and his people. This is the very least we learn about marriage from this commandment, from God's prohibition against adultery. But we must admit, it takes a lot more than simply not sleeping with someone who is not your spouse to celebrate and nurture marriage in the way that God is describing here. That's the beauty and I believe the challenge of Jesus' words in Matthew 5. So meet me there. Turn to the right. If you get to Mark, Luke, and John, go back to the left. Matthew chapter 5. And we'll look at verse 27. As Jesus has addressed murder, he'll now address adultery in a very similar way. What Jesus does with these commandments, whether generally or very specifically, is he internalizes them and intensifies them. In other words, words, he reframes the commandment around the heart, and then he intensifies it, making it more difficult even to follow. So whereas uh, Exodus 20, verse 14, could be interpreted as simply a rule of abstaining from a particular action, sex with someone who is not your spouse, Jesus reframes the law and centers it on the heart. And in this exposition, he exposes the matters of the heart. He intensifies what it even means to follow him. So hear this from Matthew 5, verse 27 and 28. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. As we've spoken before, religion says if your hands are clean, you are clean. What Jesus constantly teaches us is that the real impurity lies at the heart. The real impurity cannot be viewed ultimately by what someone does or what someone says, but ultimately what is going on in the deep contours, the recesses of their soul, of who they are. So the good news, of course, is that as Jesus does this, as he exposes the heart that is desperate need of purification, he is the one who says that I can give you a new heart. So he, he not only intensifies and internalizes it, but he makes following the commandments possible. Once again, J- Jesus is following this, this great structure within this, the Sermon on the Mount, the antithesis formula, where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So he's comparing and contrasting the commandment with what he is speaking about authoritatively. And what Jesus does uniquely, unlike any other teacher, is he does not just say, here's what I think this means. He says, this is who I am. He always refers to his own authority as the substance for the claim that he is making. And so elsewhere, Jesus will say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. All of these things he says in John, he's identifying himself as the source and substance of the thing, what we need. So in his unrivaled authority, he continues to speak about what he has to say based on who he is. Is And he makes this commandment, the seventh commandment of adultery, a matter of the heart. The heart, of course, in ancient context is the very center of a person, of their being, of their wholeheartedness, of who they are in direct contrast to verse 8 in Matthew 5 where Jesus says you're to be pure in heart. Jesus now communicates that we are not throughout the Sermon on the Mount. The intensity of Jesus' words are weighty, aren't they? Jesus makes the commandment much more difficult to follow because if the instruction is simply do not sleep with someone who is not your spouse, perhaps many of us would believe that that would be easy. But when Jesus says that actually something's going on deep in your soul that is off, that is breaking the commandment, we have much more to consider. In expounding upon the seventh commandment, Jesus explains to simply look at a woman with lustful intent is sinful and tantamount to adultery. He says, breaking the seventh commandment is much easier than we suppose. 
but it's not accidental. Who Jesus is going to speak about is not the person who accidentally looks at someone, thinks for a second, seeks forgiveness, repents, and asks for God's help. This is the person who is consistently made up of this kind of action and activity within the heart. See, in the Greek language, the verse puts it more clearly. In the ESV, in verse 28, which we pass out before the service, which I'm preaching from, they add this word intent. If you notice, that particular word intent is not a direct translation from the original manuscripts, but an interpretation that the uh, interpreters made And when we look at this word with, the word with there in verse 28, much more is exposed about Jesus' initial intent as well. Because at first glance, what we may believe is the issue is lust. It's just someone who has lust, someone who has this particular action or this activity in their soul. But when we examine the word with more emphatically, which in turn then complements the word look much better, we get a sense that it's not just lust, but the intentionality and motivation to lock hold of lustful thoughts. That's the real issue. Jesus is speaking about a man who is not simply riddled with some kind of thinking, but with the intentionality to act in some sort of way to conjure up these feelings. In other words, we're speaking about a verb that is an ongoing action, not a one-time offense, which then develops into a kind of character, a kind of heart condition. So we're not talking about someone who accidentally did something, but a state of being that somebody is. That's what Jesus is saying. And it's in this intentionality, the soul level, heart-informed desire, which is precisely what Jesus is calling out as adultery of the heart. See, through the syntax of verse 28, we see that the issue is not simply the result of lust that is bad, but a person who has a purposefulness in their heart to seek this kind of physical or rather imaginative assurance in their heart. It's a sin of being. It's a sin of imagination for the sake of sexual arousal. Yes, the thoughts themselves are sinful, but they're not just accidental. The deeper sickness still lies with the intentions of the heart to enjoy some sexual experience and sinful experience over and over and over again. Now, for some of us, we want to just go, yo, calm down. This is just, like, this just happens. You need to calm down. That's not adultery. Verse 29. This is how serious Jesus is. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now, Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. Some of you may rejoice in that. He's speaking in hyperbole, therefore the the, the aim is to not literally gouge out your eye and literally take off your arm. But the severity of the response is his aim. I think that's because, or rather, I I think that sort of severity is really unnerving to us and we think it's extraordinarily extreme. Like, Jesus, that just seems like a lot to do. Didn't you, didn't you make my arm? Didn't you make my eyes? So what are you saying? Like, we do this sort of like weird, like Jesus juke, and he's like, I'm Jesus, you can't juke me. Like, that's not gonna work. I think we find it incredibly alarming because lust to us is not alarming. We find Jesus' response incredibly extreme because we don't think adultery is that extreme. It's commonplace to us. Once again, we want Jesus to calm down, but he won't. Jesus tells us that it is more desirable, hear this, it is more desirable to live without a member of your own body than for your body to remain whole yet be thrown into fire. This is the nature of divine consequence, something I'm trying to learn and trying to teach my children. And so let me walk us through this a little bit. A small pain now. Yes, even like losing an eye or an arm. Here's what Jesus is saying. A small pain now is worth learning from and enduring in order to be saved from a more significant cost later and much more long-lasting like forever, like your whole body being thrown into hell. In other words, temporary pain is a teacher. Eternal pain is a prison warden. Temporary pain teaches us much, but eternal pain is a prison warden that keeps us forever. And Jesus is graciously communicating that to us. Now, maybe easy to understand why Jesus talks about an eye. Sight is directly connected with lust, which invades our mind's eye into our hearts. But what about the hand? 
He says the right hand specifically. Well, the phrasing is very familiar to us if we've read Matthew 18, Mark 9. Jesus uses this kind of language about responding in such a way to have these temporal costs save us from extraordinary and eternal costs. Jesus is communicating that no means is too extreme to remove yourself from the harmful pathway of sin. So through this particular general, though this particular general principle holds, Matthew's precision in chapter 5, and rather Jesus' precision, is instructive for us. He is not speaking about hands and feet as he does elsewhere. He's not speaking about multiple members of the body. He is speaking merely about the hand. And contextually, he is still speaking about sex. He is still speaking about an exposition of adultery. He has not moved yet into another, you've heard it said and I say to you, that waits till 33. So Jesus contextually is still speaking about sex. Jesus contextually is using only the hand and not the feet. He's speaking very literally here. So what is he exactly saying? That being said, Jesus seems to be addressing masturbation and what many people believe and have called solo sex today, another nice word that we've come up for a very deplorable thing. Here's why this is important to understand is because we often believe, sure, if I look at somebody else, that's not nice to them. If I look at somebody else, that's mistreating them. But if I have merely an experience with myself and for myself, what's the harm in that? Jesus says it's adultery. That's the harm in that. And that if your right hand causes you to sin, it'd be, rather, it'd be better for you to lose it. Now, why? Why all of this? Why so much of our imagination and why even personal gratification? Why is that adultery? Because sex is for marriage and marriage is for life and marriage is exclusive. This means that if the primary purpose of sexual intimacy is to be a signpost of oneness with God and its secondary purpose to create and cultivate marital union, then sex is not up for you to figure out and define for yourself. Intimacy is therefore not created through sex, but celebrated as it has already been established through the exchanging of promises and covenant of marriage between a husband and a wife. That means the imagination, the eyes, the hands, the state of the heart all defy the divine purpose of God when we experience, experience sexual pleasure in isolation or merely in our imaginations. Because sex is not for isolation, it's for union. And you cannot be united with yourself. That tells a very different story, one for which sex was never made nor never intended. What Jesus is really getting at is like murder, adultery is less about what we avoid and much more about who we are. It'd be really nice if we could just look at the Ten Commandments and say, didn't do that, did that, didn't do that, did that, and feel as though we have been pure. Jesus does not allow us to do that. When we, we are called to be a community with people and not kill them, we are called to be faithful towards each other in marriage, not adulterous. The call to not murder is based on God's justice, and the call to not commit adultery is based on God's faithfulness, and it is the Lord's faithfulness which ultimately will lead to our own because he remains faithful even when we are faithless because he is the one who ultimately knows what it means to lead to human flourishing because he made us for it. So when we say that God is being faithful, one of our favorite things to say about God and one of the things perhaps we know very little about, that God is faithful, is really based on this doctrinal idea of the immutability of God, his unchangeableness. Louis Burkhoff states that God is devoid of all change, not only in his being, but also in his perfection, in his purposes, in his promises. In virtue of this attribute, he is exalted above all becoming and is free from all accession and diminution and from all growth or decay in, in his being and perfections. His knowledge and plans, his moral principles and, vi and violations remain forever the same. Volitions remain forever the same. Ascension is like promotion. Diminution is like demotion. What Burkhoff is saying is that he, that God, is exactly who he is as he always has been and all he ever will be. He is already full wisdom, full power, full status, full worth, full glory, full presence, and he always has been. God is neither getting better nor getting worse because he has always been who he is. He just is. He doesn't change. He is faithful. And when we get a right picture for the faithfulness of God, we see that his promises have no contingency. His promises have no this, like, let's wait and see if that works out. In other words, what he says that he will do is as good as done the moment that he says it. 
The moment that he says it is as good as done. Numbers 23 says, God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he, as he said, he will do it or has he spoken and he will not perform it? Deuteronomy 7, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Every ounce of God's faithfulness, therefore, is poured into the covenant that he has with his people, a covenant which takes on very distinctly marital language. God calls himself the husband of his people, Isaiah 54, verse 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. You see, the nature of the covenant itself, which couples emulate today in their exchanging of vows, is a tradition that was instituted by God himself. God himself makes the first move. God himself makes the first covenant, and he has been faithful to his covenant ever since, to a covenant that he's made with us by his faithfulness. And this is all by design. As Tim and Kathy Keller put in their fabulous book, The Meaning of Marriage, real love, the Bible says, instinctively desires permanence. See, when we're in love, isn't it true? We don't say, I will love you as long as I feel like it. Want to get married? No. I will love you as long as you keep doing these things and avoid these things. See how much I love you, baby? I put great, clear contingencies on our relationship. No, forever leaps from our lips when we speak of love. When we are in love, we can't help ourselves. We make promises we had no idea we would ever be making. We had no idea. We want to just say everything, even when we know, like, I don't even know that I can, like, cash that check. I'm really worried, but I want to say things I don't even know if I can fulfill. I love you that much. This is why in my wedding vows, I promised to make a lot of mistakes because I knew I could do that. I knew I could make mistakes in our marriage. See, there's something about covenant that leads us to speak of forever because that's how the Lord has made us. Covenant leads to flourishing because we have been created to reflect the immutable affection that God has for his people. But the story is really clear, isn't it? When we continue to read of God's faithfulness to his people, Israel was not a faithful covenant spouse. They kept sinning. And disobeying in their persistent sin was viewed, actually condemned by God, as covenant unfaithfulness, as adultery. Hear this from Hosea chapter 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not your wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like, the, like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst for breaking the covenant, for sinning, for rebelling. See, the things that you and I just go, God will forgive me, right? Like he is abhorred by our sin. Consequences are heavy. In fact, in one of these particular moments, we might just think, isn't that a little bit harsh? See, the spiritual brokenness of humanity, though, is not simply a, a passive condition. It's a willful rejection of a covenant. This is not just something, ah, I did it again. This is, I make plans to sin. I make plans to rebel and to reject the covenant. And this is not merely a spiritualization of the Old Testament. King David himself, the man after God's own heart, offers one of Scripture's greatest cautionary tales. This man, selected by God to lead God's people, not only stole someone's wife, but then killed her husband in 2 Samuel 11. Biblical language of covenant, therefore, persists even outside of the Old Testament into the New to our present moment. And regretfully, we keep breaking the covenant. So James writes in chapter 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here's the point, church. God is faithful. We are not. God is faithful. We are not. Not, and our persistent lack of faithfulness reveals our lack of understanding and trust in God's faithfulness. This may strike us as odd because we talk about God's faithfulness all the time. Let me, for your joy and mine, explain what's underneath all of that. One of my concerns about how we interpret and speak about God's faithfulness, which reveals itself often directly with our relationship with God, but also in our romantic relationships, is that we believe God is faithful 
only when our desires are fulfilled. Only when. Hear that again, please. We think God is faithful when our desires are fulfilled. When God calls us to abstain from short-term pleasure, submit to his word, and to not get what we want, we rarely respond and go, how faithful you are, God. How faithful you are to make me wait. How faithful you are to make me wait. It's usually only after we get what we want that we begin to speak of his faithfulness. And believing ultimately that God's faithfulness is retroactive. He is faithful when he does what I'm waiting for. If we go below the surface, our tendency, this this deeper belief system is exposed. We believe that our desire is ultimate. We believe that God's faithfulness is contingent and subjective. Think, for instance, about our logic in dating and marriage. They're riddled with the contours of these faiths, these understandings, these false beliefs. Few of us who desire marriage proclaimed God's faithfulness or proclaim God's faithfulness toward us romantically when we're single. We are waiting for him to be faithful, namely, to give me a spouse. Then, once he gives me a spouse, then I am ready, willing, able. I've got melodies to sing to him of his faithfulness when I am given a spouse. But in the short term, ultimately, I'm waiting to see if he will be faithful. Secondly, a few of us who are married celebrate the faithfulness of God as we struggle with intimacy, as we regularly make war through anger, as we are frustrated and try to work through all of our issues. We're waiting on God to be faithful and give us peace in our marriage and happiness in our marriage. And until those things are given to us, downloaded to us, we're waiting to see if he's gonna be faithful. It's when we get married, when our intimacy and pleasure increase, when we have peace, when we're no longer angry, when we work out all of our issues as if that will ever happen, that's when we're ready to talk about God's faithfulness. Our sin as if his faithfulness is a product of the good life. See, the truth is, church, in our sin, we do not believe God's faithfulness is an immutable quality, but rather a subjective personal commodity. We don't think it's something of who God is no matter what. It's something we will speak about once he gives us what we desire. He is faithful when he is faithful to me. Therefore, when it comes to sex, especially adultery, pornography, and solo sex, we think it's for us. Sex is for us to use according to our desires and our supposed needs. In rationalizing having sex before married, enjoying lust, consuming pornography, and even committing acts of adultery, here's some of the things we said. Here's some greatest hits for you, if you will. Let me see if this begins to communicate the disposition of our sinful hearts. It's not hurting anybody. Therefore, sin is only the thing that hurts someone else, not what is ultimately disobedient to God. So it's not hurting anybody. Or one of my favorites, it feels good, so how could it be wrong? That's some of the dumbest, I I just. Or, what's perhaps underneath all of this, well, God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? We have these sort of like very vague, very modern sort of ideas that we don't even know what we're talking about. Here's here's actually the answer. God really, really, really wants you to be happy. He really does. This is one of the lies that I believe even many years in my ministry. I think he wants you to be happy way more than you do. But here's the key. He's the only one who actually knows what will make you happy. He's the only one who has the definition of of, of, of happiness locked. He understands it. You and I keep scratching and calling. See, in our foolishness, our foolish desires for pleasure and happiness, we decide to determine what's right and wrong on a personal level. And we think we're still being moral and know what's best. After all, adultery's still illegal, isn't it? See, look at us as a society. We still know right from wrong. We're a moral society and can still do as we please. See, in short, we don't want to be faithful. We want to be free. At least free on our terms. Choice, we believe, is what makes us free, not submission, not being. We, we believe that being unhindered, not tied down, unattached. But we also still like the idea of marriage. See, we want to look good, but we want to feel good. Or rather, we don't want to be good, we want to look good and we want to feel good. This leads to devastation. It's riddled throughout the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, not only 
is severe consequence for adultery is it death, but Jesus is stricter still. In his address on adultery, he says that it's better to be maimed than to go to the hell of fire for adultery. In other words, the righteous consequence of adultery, even adultery within the heart, is hell. Specifically, he says Gehenna. Gehenna was a reference to a valley just south of Jerusalem where children were sacrificed to a false god in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Theologian Stanley Grins explains how the idea picked up meaning through the New Testament writers. The prophets borrowed the term as a symbol of judgment and later for the final judgment. In Jesus' day, the valley was used as a burial place for criminals and for burning garbage. It formed an an appropriate metaphor for the destiny of the lost. Gehenna is a terrifying picture. It's not an exaggeration of a God who's frustrated or who doesn't like not being listened to. It is a natural consequence and an ordained consequence for violating God, not being faithful to him and doing as we please. The powerful consequence then begs the question for us, how can we be made right with God? How can we be made right spiritually? And I think our religious minds are like, uh, he's already given us the answer. We need to stop lusting. We need to remove our eyes, pull off our arms. We need to start doing right things and stop doing bad things. We need to change our behavior and avoid hell. But Jesus has already made it clear. Those are merely a metaphor to encourage repentance because the issue is the heart. After all, you could pull out an eye and still sin in your imagination. You could take off an arm and continue to willfully reject the God of the Bible and not be faithful to him. These are a picture for us of what it means and how severe the consequence of sin ultimately is. See, our heart is the issue. We can't just start being faithful. We're left with the question. And one of the Old Testament asks but never quite answers. Again, uh, Professor McLaughlin puts it this way in her book, how can the holy and faithful, love-filled God live with his loveless, faithless, sin-filled people? Let's answer it with a story. The Pharisees came to Jesus one day and they brought a woman with them. They said, Jesus, this woman has been caught in adultery and the law of Moses said that we need to stone her. Now, we'll leave our comments limited to the fact that what the Old Testament actually said is that the man and the woman should be committed to death, and they've only brought the woman. What's revealed here is that ultimately the Pharisees are about testing Jesus, not ultimately about understanding the will and righteousness of God. Jesus knows this. And yet he has a woman who has sinned, Though all parties are not there, he has a woman who has sinned and he has men who are living in such a self-righteous and arrogant way, he wants to put them on notice too. And so Jesus, John tells us, bends down, writes in the dirt, stands up and says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now Jesus knows the Old Testament. He has the whole story of the unfaithfulness of God's people. Not only the purity of marriage, but the purity of what it means to be a covenant people. He could have if he wanted to. Jesus himself could have picked up a stone. He told everybody, drop your stones. And then he turns to the woman and he says this with great tenderness in his eyes. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. This application to the fulfilled law, Jesus stands in the gap. He calls her to holiness, but he takes on her accusers too. Jesus internalizes and intensifies the command against adultery. And then he restores the adulterer. He restores the brokenhearted. He restores those who have been sexually sinful. He restores those who have been sinned against. He covers them in righteousness and washes away their shame because Jesus is faithful and he's just. Because he is love and he is righteousness. Because he is truth and beauty. He is faithful in that he remains pure and holy. And he is just in that he deals with the sin that persists in our hearts. So, if you have committed, are committing, or have longings in your heart to commit adultery. If you are addicted to pornography. If you are regularly caught in the longingly looks on social media or on the train. If you are routinely tempted in your heart to hang on too long to images and fantasies and aspirations and fictions of romance. If you are trapped in the lust of the flesh, hear this. Jesus is faithful and just. Come to him in humility. He will dismiss all your accusers, free you from condemnation, wash you clean of a guilty conscience, forgive you, and and then call you to holiness, empower you with his righteousness, make you pure, make you his, make you redeemed, make you son, make you daughter. He will not dismiss you, he will clothe you. 
This is the powerful reality that does not just come up in Jesus' mind, but Ezekiel points one of the most powerful pictures of the God of the Bible covering over the guilt and shame of his sinful and unfaithful people with himself. This is who he has always been. He has always been faithful like this. This is a word for the abandoned. This is a word for the abused, for the mistreated. This is a word for those who have caused shame, who has caused pain, who have been part and willful participants in this sexual sickness. What Jesus ultimately says, or rather what God reveals in Ezekiel, says, for thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you, for all that you have done, declares the Lord. When we are faithless, when we are unfaithful, God is faithful. God is faithful. Church, I wonder if you heard that this morning. God is faithful. And his faithfulness leads Jesus to the cross. And at the cross, we all drop our instincts to condemn others for sin that we think we have not performed, things that we think we have not done while there is guilt and infidelity in our hearts because we realize that at the cross that we are all cheaters on our first love. The cross is not permissiveness then. In the face of our crucified Lord, we dare not downplay the morbidity of sin and say just calm down and get over it. At the cross, we do not discover spiritual passivity. We find costly grace purchased by the true bridegroom, Jesus Christ. We meet him who is the fulfillment of God's enduring promise to be faithful to his covenant people. We find a cure for what ails us. And we find a new identity, not as one who has lustful thoughts, but what the scriptures teach us collectively as the bride of Christ. Paul took time to write a letter, write a letter to the first century church in Ephesus to make sure his brothers and sisters understood and captured this vital aspect of their nature. So now hear this, church in the square, Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. On the surface, this may merely be instructions for us in our earthly marriages, but through Sexual intimacy, submission, sacrifice, and love. We are to cultivate and nurture this kind of oneness. It gives us a whole picture. However, this oneness, Paul explains, is also just a signpost. Did you notice marriage is not an end to itself? In fact, when you read this passage, you sort of get confused at the end. Is he speaking about earthly husbands and wives, or is he speaking about Jesus and the church? Yes, he is. As J.I. Packer writes in his book on the Ten Commandments, a signpost only helps those who will heed, or head rather, the way it directs. And if you insist on camping for life beside a lovely signpost, you would be daft. You would never get anywhere. Marriage is not about marriage. It is very much about the mysterious union of Christ and his church, a union forged by the death of our Redeemer and the resurrection of our Savior, the Bridegroom, King Jesus. See, below the surface of marital relationships is a rich oneness, a richer oneness than sex could ever achieve. Marital union points to this timeless affection of God for his people. But this is not merely spiritual, but instructive for us in our earthly marriages and our understanding of sex in general. See, intimacy arrives in a relationship that has made covenant. Celebrating and cultivating the intimacy of sex would be like celebrating resurrection without believing and trusting in Jesus. There is no hope in that for you. 
Celebrating and cultivating this intimacy comes as we serve and care for one another, particularly in the case through sexual union. Therefore, adultery through the body or through the imagination with others or by ourselves commits acts of covenantal treason. And we must come clean. We must confess and by God's grace become holy. I remember the first time I had to share with my wife everything. As we approached our wedding day, I had to share with her the thoughts that I had had, any relationship that I had, what it was like for me, my addiction to pornography in college and seminary. It was devastating. It felt, real talk, like I was ripping out an arm and like maybe she would reject me. Like maybe after I confess all of that, you know what she would say is never mind. I didn't know all that was in there. I didn't know that was in your mind. I thought you were, I thought you were a preacher's kid. I thought you were gonna be a pastor. I thought you were holy. I thought you were set apart. I thought you were altogether different. But the moment she cried with me, the moment she lamented with me, when she had not yet covenanted, when she could have left, she could have walked away and had perfect reason to do so. But what she did that day was to show me the love of Christ who though my sin was like scarlet, she trusted that the gospel of Jesus made me white as snow. So if you're seeking out or enjoying lust, if you're thinking about committing adultery, if you've been caught in the middle of it right now, if you have in your past, if you're not married but having sex, if you have been unfaithful, know that we are all sick. We are all naked we are all a faithless people and Jesus is the great good physician who is ready to heal us. He is the risen Lord ready to redeem us. He is the faithful God ready to remain faithful to us. He is the chaste bridegroom ready to clothe you in righteousness. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we ask for your help as we have been an unfaithful people with our bodies, with our minds and our hearts. And yet what a beautiful word it is, God. That riddled with that guilt and shame, you do not turn away from us, you clothe us. You don't condemn us, you save us. You don't bring up all of these things to condemn. You bring them up that you might be our righteousness, that you might be our hope, that you might be our ultimate bridegroom, Lord Jesus. And so make us pure, we ask. Make us undefiled, we ask. Not by hiding our guilt and shame, but by walking in the light as you are in the light. We might confess our sin, know that you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And what a day that will be, Lord Jesus. When the church, brothers and sisters, will be presented to you, you'll present us to yourself. And that though we were riddled in this culture, in this age, in this world, in our hearts with all manner of sexual sickness, on that day, you will present us to yourself without spot, without wrinkle, without devastation, without shame, without guilt. But white as snow, pure and holy, spotless by your great love and grace. Now may we live in that reality today because we are your church today. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.